Good morning, church. Please join me in the scripture reading that will be found uh, from two excerpts from the book of Ruth. I will be reading from chapter 1, verse um, 8 through 17, then chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. You can follow along um, in your bulletin on page 7 or on the screen behind me. All right. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave. You are to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. The genealogy of David. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. Then the woman living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Um, this is the word of the Lord. I wanna begin by saying a happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers here. I know we've been saying that throughout our service today. Um, what a joy and a pleasure to be able to celebrate you and honor you, the unsung heroes of just about every family in this room. Um, I also know that Mother's Day uh, can be a difficult day for many. Uh, some of you have lost a mother, or some of you have lost a child, be it silently or, or, uh, or with people aware of this. And Mother's Day can be a very painful day for some of you. Some of you, you long to be a mother, and, and so Mother's Day can be a painful experience. Some of you have very strained relationships with your mothers. I know that it could be a very painful experience. Mother's Day can often be an incredibly celebratory time. Um, some of us, well, we kind of dismiss it. It's just a, a part of our, our country's marketing schemes or something like that. But the reality is that in the church, we can look at our mothers and say that you are heard. 
You are heard, you are seen, you are known. God may hear and celebrate and honor you because he is honored in your work and service uh, in building and raising your family and also he hears your cries. We're at the end of the series. We started this series in August. We're at the end now. This is the last sermon in our series. And our series has been about how God works through brokenness, through our brokenness to bring about a greater worth, a greater salvation, a greater joy. It's one of the major themes of the Bible. And we're going to end that series here with this passage and the narrative of Ruth. So I'm going to give you, basically, I'm going to give you an overview of the book, an overview of Ruth. And then we're going to draw about five or six, depending on our time, five or six quick lessons uh, from this narrative. An overview, and then five or six quick lessons we can draw from this. Now, the narrative of Ruth, the story of Ruth begins with the brokenness of Naomi, her mother-in-law. Naomi was an Israelite, and she became an immigrant to a country called Moab, a neighboring country called Moab with her husband in a time of famine. Moab is an enemy state, an enemy nation to God's people. But there, she raised two sons. Two sons who married Moabite women, but then first Naomi loses her husband, he dies, and then Naomi loses both of her sons. Now, think about this. This is ancient times. In today's society, people find their worth in what? They find their worth in what they've accomplished, what they do. So people often find a sense of worth through their salaries or their titles or their promotions or the size of their homes, but not Naomi's day, not in Ruth's time. Today, we look at things like your educational status, your education or your pedigree, your skills, your wealth as indicators of your worth, but not Naomi, not Ruth. In ancient times, it was all about family. Are you married? Do you have children? How many children? How many sons do you have? So Naomi, she is broken. Why? She is broken economically. She is broken socially. She is broken culturally. Why? Because she has lost both her husband. He died and her sons. They died. And she's older. She's an older woman, so she's got no parents to go back home to. She's got, she's got uh, no opportunity to get remarried. She's got no prospects. She's got no opportunity to build a new family. And so she's just destitute. She is helpless. She is just lost. Now we say, wow, that is a primitive culture. And primitive cultures were just absolutely cruel. I mean, how could they do this? How how, how society, they use marriage and the number of your children to define whether or not you are a somebody? That's so cruel. It's so primitive. Look, even in our day, everybody builds their self-image, particularly around things that society uh, almost defines or determines for them as a sense of worth. That's what they do. A lot of people here feel like nobody because of your figure or because of your marital status, maybe even, because you feel old or you're aging. A lot of people here feel like a nobody because we don't have certain, a certain type of job or a certain salary figure. You feel bigger or smaller based on what society essentially is telling you. And look, I do too. I grew up in a Korean home in the 1970s without a father because he passed away. And so I was different. You see that? Um, When we started Metro, 
there were people always who kind of turned their nose up uh, when we started this church. They said, oh, he's not like us. He's too old. He's older than us. He didn't go to the same school as us. He didn't study like us. He didn't get, he didn't get ordained until much later. Uh, you know, and they, the people are so cruel. They can be so cruel. They can find any little thing to kind of to knock you down and, make, and try to make you feel small. Naomi, in those ancient times, she had no husband, no family lineage. And so she literally had no name. She had no identity. Today, you could come from a strong family name and people are like, whatever, right? They say, who cares? Uh, because you're defined by your individual accomplishments. But ancient times, it didn't matter what you accomplished. It didn't matter if you were accomplished. What mattered was, what's your name? What family do you come from? Do you have a legacy? Naomi has lost her legacy. So she's completely destitute. She's got none. Now, what happens is she goes back to Israel. She goes back to Bethlehem. And the passage does this kind of sad play on her name. People remember her from back in the day. They say, is that Naomi? And, and Naomi, the word Naomi means sweet. And she responds, no, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. In other words, I was Naomi. When I left, I was sweet. Life was good. But now I am bitter. I am Mara. Now, Naomi tells her two daughters-in-law, go home. Because why? You are younger. You are young widows. You can still have prospects. You can stay among your people in Moab. You can stay with your family. You have a chance of building a better life, another life for yourself, another family for yourself. Here, if you're with me, you're just going to be outcasts. You're just going to be widows and foreigners. You're going to be looked upon as, as the enemy, and, you're gonna be, and so you're going to be cast out and rejected. You've got no chance. In fact, if you stay here, there's a possibility because of the racial tensions. I mean, we are no strangers to that, right? Because of the racial tensions, you could actually experience violence. It could be dangerous for you. Go back. In chapter 1, verse 8, she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have shown me, as you've shown to the dead and to me. That's what she says. But what does Ruth say in chapter 1? Now, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. That's covenantal language. In other words, what she's saying is, I'm going to bind myself. I'm going to tie myself to you so that whatever happens to you, so be it with me. Now think about this. Every act of immigration, many of us here come from immigrant homes. Every act of immigration is a drastic act of immigration. I mean, immigration is a traumatic experience in many ways. Immigrants, what they're doing is they leave behind their family. They leave behind whatever status they had, whatever was familiar to them, but they always leave for the hope of a better life for themselves and for their children. But Ruth, Ruth leaves all that behind knowing it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse for her because of her love for her mother-in-law. I mean, this is a complete, unfailing, transcendent pledge of love and loyalty, just completely undeserved, unmerited. What a covenantal love. That's really only, that word in Hebrew is kesed. It is a word that's only used to describe God's love for his people. It's only a word that God can have for his people. And a complete, countercultural, 
unfailing love. And, when, and so when Naomi says, may the Lord deal with you kindly, that word kindly is the word he said, may, may the Lord deal with you kindly as you've shown me. She's saying, you've shown me that kind of love. You've shown me a love that I don't deserve. So go home. May God show you that same case said love. May God have an unmerited covenantal love towards you. In chapter 2, I mean, Ruth says, no, I will stay with you. She demonstrates, she, she hears Naomi and says, no, I'm going to stay with you. In chapter 2, you see her, she's gleaning in the fields. What that means is when you're gleaning in the fields, when there's a harvester that's going to pick up grain, whatever's being left behind because they're rushing through and picking up grain, she's kind of trailing behind these harvesters. She's homeless, she's destitute with Naomi, but to keep her alive and to keep her family surviving, she's picking up those loose pieces of grain that are left and taking that home. In other words, she's working completely undignified act, especially for a woman in those ancient times. And she happens upon this man, Boaz's fields. And Boaz, he hears about Ruth. This is a Moabite woman showing kindness to her Israelite mother-in-law, and he is just amazed. In turn, Ruth and Naomi, as they get to know Boaz, they are amazed by his kindness. He sends protection for her. He sends uh, men. Why? Because they could experience violence. She's an ostracized, marginalized, poor widower, so she, he sends protection for her. He essentially lets her work for food there in his field. Naomi says in chapter 2, verse 20, uh, Boaz does not stop showing kindness. Again, we see that word, kesed. Naomi realizes at that point, Boaz is one of the few people who could be what you call a kinsman redeemer. Now, what is that? In ancient Israelite law, the kinsman redeemer, the Hebrew word goel, is a relative who... If he so chose, if you had lost your ancestral land, remember when the Israelites moved into Israel, that land that God had promised them, they gave and parceled out parts of, land, parts of land given to each person as they entered into Israel during those ancient times. And if you had lost that land somehow, if you sold that land somehow, a kinsman redeemer is a relative who could buy back that land for you. In other words, for Naomi, it would redeem her family, her entire lineage. It would save her, in a sense. It would restore all of her rights and her standing in that country. Whoever owned that land right now, they had to sell it. But you don't just buy and sell. You couldn't just do that. He would have to marry into this. You would have to marry into this, in a sense. So Boaz would have to marry Ruth, this poor widower from a despised race, Naomi says, well, I mean, he could do that, but why would he do that? Why would he? I mean, he would be sacrificing his reputation. He would be sacrificing his honor. In fact, in chapter 4, there was another suitor. There was another man, but he basically says, I can't marry Ruth. It would ruin my estate. It would ruin my reputation. Now, we stop and we say, well, I mean, that is so unfair. That is so immature, we say. Think about this. Ever since you were a child, even now, for all of you who are working in the corporate sector or whatever industry you're in, you understand this even now, no matter how popular you are, if you start hanging out with the people who are kind of outcast in your community, whatever community it is, it starts in middle school all the way up, probably even earlier, but whatever community you're in, if you start hanging out with the outcast, no matter how approved, no matter how beautiful, no matter how popular you are, you slowly start to become an outcast. It's almost like their outcastness kind of rubs off and transfers, imputed to you. 
So Naomi is saying, I mean, he could, Boaz could buy back our land. He could be the kinsman redeemer. Why would he do that? So what does Ruth do in chapter three? She goes to Boaz and she lays at his feet and asks him to marry her. Very atypical of any woman in the modern or traditional culture. Ruth doesn't fit into any category of woman. She is beautiful and yet modest. She is a woman in her culture and yet she's working. She is feminine and yet so bold and so courageous. She's assertive, this incredible picture of what we call a biblical femininity. It's really a standard, a godly standard of biblical humility and courage at the same time. For any man, she is a model. For any woman, she's a model. For any man, she's a model. Boaz says, I do. And in a sense, and through a series of acts, restores the line of Naomi, marries Ruth, and as a result, Ruth and Naomi are joined into Boaz's line, into the line of Judah. Boaz leads to the birth of Obed. Obed leads to the birth of Jesse. Jesse leads to the birth of David. David becomes the king of Israel. This line from which Jesus Christ himself is born. It's an amazing narrative. This is like one of the most, you talk about beautiful romantic stories, one of the most beautiful love stories in all of history. What do we learn from it? One, the gospel transcends race. The gospel transcends ethnicity. ethnicity. The gospel transcends geographical boundaries. The gospel transcends socioeconomic economic status. The gospel transcends gender roles and, and what, we, what traditionalists or modernists think about gender in terms of what their role should be. This is ancient times. What is Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite. And yet, in Matthew chapter 1, I mean, women are never included in any sort of uh, ancient genealogy because they had such little standing in those ancient times. And yet in Matthew chapter one, it almost discredits. I mean, why would you include women? But Matthew, St. Matthew includes women in the genealogy of Jesus. Very atypical. And one of those women is Ruth. Ruth becomes a mother, ancestor of Jesus. An enemy of God's people, yet loved by God, seen by God, known by God, she becomes one of the great heroines in the Bible. How? I mean, she's from Moab, but she's watching after. I mean, she didn't do anything. I mean, what did she do? She was just watching after a mother-in-law from another race. Somebody considered an enemy, and yet she goes back to that enemy country and calls it home. That's what she does. What she's saying is, I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to give up all of my marital prospects, the chance to ever have children again, which means I'm going to sacrifice my reputation. I'm going to sacrifice my status. I know that the risk is I'm going to look back someday. What could have been? I'm sacrificing that too. Any chance of recovery in my life, and I'm going to do that for you. What does that teach us? There is no boundary that God would cross that he wouldn't cross because he will go the distance for his people. Don't you ever say, I'm a nobody. Don't you ever say, I'm alone. Secondly, what a picture of, I mean, a counterintuitive life because of the, I mean, the counterintuitive life because of the transforming grace of God in your life. What a picture of biblical femininity. Why? Here's Ruth in, a, in 
a traditional society, she's a nobody. And yet what she does is, she, that doesn't stop her. She overturns traditional values. She subverts traditional values uh, in that society. Naomi's trying to send her back. She's trying to send her back to her family. Why? Because your family in those ancient times is your life. It's all you have for survival in this state in these circumstances. She's saying, I have no life, but you can have a life. Go back to your father. Go back to your mother. Go back home. Go back home and get a chance at a better life. But Ruth, she chooses to leave her father. She chooses to leave her home. Completely goes against the world's values. It's not like she's saying, you know, oh, someday you see Naomi. They're going to write this book about me. And the world is going to be transformed. 2,500 years from now, people will be studying my life. That's not what she's thinking. Every day, she's just barely getting by. Will I pick up enough grain to feed my family? With no children, no son, she's thinking about, wow, someday I'm going to grow old doing this. Can we survive? Can we make it? Will people show us enough kindness to get by and look? This is ancient times. Who's the one that's working here? Who's the one that's gleaning the fields and laboring? Goes against tradition and society. It's Ruth. Who's the one risking her, her, her life for the survival of her family? It's Ruth. Usually male prospects, it's the male that usually proposes marriage in traditional and modern societies to some degree, right? Who's asserting that here? It's Ruth. Yet Ruth is the younger one. She's the foreigner. She's the outcast. She's the, she's the poverty-stricken, destitute woman, and yet she's the hero. What an amazing picture of biblical femininity completely overturning the values of society. You see that? What strength, what power. In a traditional society, there's no such thing as an interracial marriage. And yet Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which means what? Salvation literally is born through Ruth, through an interracial marriage. She's a mother of Jesus. Through her brokenness, we can receive salvation. What is God saying? I don't care about the world's values. I'm going to turn them upside down. I'm going to turn them on their head. So if you say you're a Christian, but then you're just driven by worldly popularity and approval, you're just desperate for these things. You want worldly wealth or status. You're literally going against, maybe even subverting, trying to subvert what God is doing. And Boaz, I mean, look at Boaz. He is a man in that culture. The masculine, this is biblical masculinity. He is just impressed and inspired by this woman who is just really marginalized by society. And so what does that do? It leads him. He crosses boundaries. He, he overturns the values of his own society for Ruth and ultimately saves her life. What does that teach us? There is no value, no worldly value. God is saying, I will overturn worldly values to save my people. Don't ever say you are alone. Don't ever say that you are a nobody. Thirdly, this is about the life-changing power of a real friendship. He said love, unfailing love, a loyalty that extends beyond measure. Naomi says, go back. He says, go back to your gods. And Ruth, she responds. She says, may the Lord deal with me if anything but death separates us. She calls God her Lord. And whenever you see that word Lord in those kind of minor subcap letters, basically what she's saying, she's a Moabite, and she's saying, the Lord is my Lord. 
He's calling the Lord for herself. Basically, what she's saying is, my gods? No, I want your God. I want your God. Naomi's sending uh, her back to her family, to her gods, and she says, no, may the Lord, she says, may the Lord show kindness to you. Naomi is lost. I mean, Naomi is as good as dead. She is destitute. But in that state, knowing that basically I've got no future, God knows what's going to happen to me. I'm going to, I'm probably going to be left for dead. But she's still thinking for Ruth. Go. She still desires God's unfailing love and kindness for Ruth. She's willing to essentially let her life go so that Ruth can thrive. And Ruth says, seeing that, I place my trust in your God. She calls him Lord. That word Lord, that word Yahweh, is a very, very special name that's only attributed to God among people who have a personal, deep relationship with God. Why? Because there's something about Naomi's God that powered her, her care and her thoughtfulness for Ruth, even though she was suffering. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is this? So attractive. She can't dismiss him. It made Naomi's faith credible. It made Naomi's God credible. It made Naomi's faith credible because it made Naomi's God credible. Ruth is thinking, your God, let me get this straight, your God teaches you in your state right now, lost, just completely just gone, and yet teaches you to put my needs ahead of yours? I want that God. I want your God. Ruth saw Naomi's heart, her love, go back home. I mean, I have every reason to ask you to stay, and I could, but I want you to thrive, so go. Ruth knows what that means for Naomi. She's not going to make it, and that just gets her. That just gets her. In chapter 2, verse 13, Ruth speaks to Boaz, you've spoken kindly to me. Chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi speaks about Boaz. He has not stopped showing kindness. Chapter 3, Boaz looks to Ruth in turn. You have made your last kindness greater than the first. In all these cases, it's all the same word. The word kese, the Hebrew word for an unconditional, undeserved, powerful, self-binding, covenantal love that is unfailing, that only God actually demonstrates to his people throughout Scripture. And yet here it's made real in suffering, in sacrifice. A true friend considers your comfort and your thriving above their own. Kate said, unfailing love that changes and transforms your life. Tim Keller, my favorite preacher, he says like this, the most transforming facilitator of an encounter with God is your knowledge now. The most transforming facilitator of an encounter with God is your theology? No. What books you've read? No. The transforming facilitator of your encounter with God is your wealth and status? No. The most transforming facilitator of an encounter with God is the unconditional love of true friendship. It's life-saving, life-changing. Fourthly, you never lose hope as a result. Look around you. You never lose hope. You never give up. Why? Because there are signs of hope everywhere in any person's life. There is nothing about Ruth's narrative that is so special. I mean, you don't see any major miracles here. God isn't speaking and booming and thundering down from some mountain here. 
No healings that are miraculous taking place here. There are no visions that are, that are grand that are being interpreted here in this text. There's nothing special that's going on. All you see, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, it's just hard days, barely surviving, just mundane suffering, and yet God is at work underneath this veil of suffering. Constantly you see fingerprints, his fingerprints everywhere throughout this woman's life. That's what you see. He's at work under this veil of suffering and loss, working through it every day. Naomi says, I am empty. I have nothing. But she has Ruth. And Ruth is a treasure, a treasure that's going to change her life. She just didn't see it, you see? Now, some of us, we're going to say, well, how can a God with such infinite power and such infinite love allow this kind of suffering for somebody that he claims to love? Either he doesn't exist him, or he must not be good. Ah, but think about this. If you can't see a good reason for suffering, are you telling me then there must be no good reason? Is that even intelligent reasoning? It just happened that Naomi's husband and sons died. It just happened that they were married to Ruth and Orpah. It just happened that Ruth was gleaning along these fields. It just happened that these fields belonged to Boaz. It just happened that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, the one person that could save Naomi's entire family lineage. It just happened that while Ruth is working, Boaz happened to catch sight of her. It just happened that he was talking to certain people who knew about her family and their state. It just happened. It just happened. It just happened. It just happened. You see that? It just happened that Boaz was an ancestor to Christ. Is all this chance? Naomi just didn't see. She just didn't see God at work. How about you? Do you see? You see God at work? Or are you just, all you see is the world shrunk, diminished to the size of your worries and your problems? And your anger, is that all you've got? One day, we're all going to look back. We're all going to look back on our stories. And we're going to look back in awe at the great love of God that brought together all of our suffering. And we're going to see it unfold, unravel, and see how much of it was for his honor and his glory and for our good. So don't just get ensnared in, in your circumstance or in your particular moment right now in your story, this chapter that you're living. Plug into God's ultimate story of suffering and redemption. And one day you're going to see that all that sorrow, all the loss, all that brokenness, all your tears that you've cried will be swallowed up by a greater joy. And then it will be clear to you, my God has never abandoned me. I was never alone. Naomi cries out, I'm just bitter. But then there's Ruth. And she did not even realize what kind of a treasure she had in Ruth. What are your signs? What are your signs? Five, we must embrace the pattern of God's wisdom and grace and power through, working through our own brokenness. You see, Naomi, she's lost sons, but in chapter four, Ruth bears a son. 
And, and they say to Naomi, Ruth is actually greater to you than seven sons. Seven is the number for completion. It, if you look through the scripture, there's patterns and numbers. Seven is the number for completion and perfection and eternity. In other words, what, what, she, what they're saying is Ruth makes you complete. Ruth makes you complete. She is better than a perfect son. She is better than an infinite number of sons. God has blessed Naomi not despite her brokenness, but he has worked through the brokenness to bring about a greater joy and a greater delight and a greater salvation. That's how God works. That's actually the pattern that he's worked all through scripture, and that's the pattern. He can, why is it in scripture? To teach us the pattern of how he works in our lives. He doesn't work despite your sin and brokenness and humiliation. He works through your sin and brokenness and humiliation. It's through that brokenness. Not despite suffering and humiliation and loss and death, but through your suffering and through your humiliation, through your defeat, through your losses, through your tears, through your death. Chapter one, Naomi says, I've got no more prospects. I've got no more sons. I am done. I am finished. It is bitter for me. Chapter four, Ruth is greater than seven sons. Those are the bookends of the story. My life is now complete, she says. Redemption has happened through the brokenness. And because Ruth's story is etched into the narrative of Jesus, that is good news for the rest of us here. We now have a story that we can plug into, you see? Because the cross is the, Jesus Christ. That, so that is the ultimate story of suffering and, and sacrifice and humiliation and defeat and loss and death. The narrative of Jesus, it sets, it actually completes the pattern. God uses Jesus' suffering. He uses Jesus' sacrifice and his humiliation and defeat and loss and death to bring about the ultimate salvation, the ultimate redemption, and one day, the ultimate restoration. And so, if God works through just the worst suffering, the greatest injustice, the death, the death of his own son, to bring about salvation, certainly he can work through your suffering. You feel like a nobody? Sometimes, God worked through the ultimate nobody on the cross. You feel like you're alone? God worked through the ultimate aloneness on the cross. You see that? I mean, people even standing around Jesus are, are crying out. I mean, what good can come from this man suffering like this on the cross? The greatest good, you see. The greatest good. The greatest salvation. Naomi is broken and weeping and she's just suffering and lonely. What does that teach us? Suffering is almost, we don't search it, we don't pursue it, because it's going to happen. If you're a human being, you're going to suffer. So it's, it's, a, it's a byproduct of sin, you see? Suffering is like a prerequisite for a greater joy. Suffering is like the prerequisite for a greater joy. If you see Jesus as the ultimate story of brokenness that you could tie your story of brokenness into. Almost tether yourself to that story. See the parallels, see how it works, see the comparisons, and then tie into the greater story. Whatever you suffer, Jesus suffered greater. Whatever cry, tears you've cried, Jesus cried greater for you. You see that? That will be your completion. Never forget that patternistic wisdom of God. Never forget the patternistic love of God. Never forget the patternistic grace of God. It's amazing every time, and yet it is so consistent and unfailing. He said, kindness of God through the suffering of Jesus. Always trust his word. Trust his promise. Trust his wisdom. 
trust that he will restore. How do you trust that? We've come to the end, folks. How do we trust that? By just trying harder to trust? Is that how you get it? By just living more sacrificial, oh, Ruth, sacrifice, I gotta sacrifice. Is that what's gonna get you by? None of us can be like Ruth. That's not the point of the story. You see that? Look at Naomi, she is bitter. It's like she's talking like the sun is pretty much set on her life. When in reality, it's all set up for a whole new life for her. But how does she get it? Because she just worked harder? Because she just trusted God so well? You don't see that in this passage. Naomi is in despair. She wasn't looking for God, wasn't trusting God. Actually, she says, God's hand is turned against me. That's what she says, when in actuality, God's hand was leading her through the presence of a real friend. Ruth is saying, I'm never going to leave you. That's God saying, I will never leave you. And he never did. So Naomi is blessed over and over and over through Ruth, just completely unmerited, undeserved. What does that tell you? God does not reward you with his presence because you lived a good life. That's what a lot of us here grew up thinking, that God's just going to reward you because you lived a good life. That is not true. God, uh, God's not just going to re reward you because you placed your trust in him for that matter. You receive it by sheer grace. You receive God's presence by sheer grace, by plugging. I mean, you are Naomi in the story. So you need to plug, you need a Ruth. You're gonna plug into a greater story, a greater narrative, a greater Ruth. Ruth points to the one that comes from her, her son. Ruth left her father's house. Ruth left her family, the immediate comforts of home. And she came down, became an outsider and a foreigner at the risk of her life. She became a sufferer and a servant, constantly working in an undignified manner, suffering humiliation and marginalization, even just unwomanly, deemed unwomanly according to tradition. She was rejected and despised. But what God was doing was setting it up patternistically for his son. Remember, Ruth experienced a love, a sacrifice that she couldn't account for through the brokenness and yet still love of Naomi. If Naomi's active love moved and drove Ruth to actively love, then what about us? How much more the sight of he left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but his love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus Christ left his father's house. He left the throne. He left his family. He left the comforts of home. And the high king came down. John chapter one, he came to that which was his own. And yet, Ruth went to an, an enemy country. Jesus Christ came to his own people, and yet his own did not receive him. You know what that means? Ruth was an outcast. Jesus became an outcast. Ruth was a foreigner. Jesus became a foreigner. Ruth came at the risk of violence and death. Jesus came at the certainty of violence and death. But Jesus Christ, he's the ultimate outcast, the ultimate foreigner among his own people, coming at, at certain violence, certainty of violence and death, why? He suffered and endured poverty and brokenness because he is the picture, the physical embodiment, the incarnation of unfailing love, a true demonstration of God's unfailing love to his people. Kesed, 
It's unmerited, undeserved, extended and transcends, just beyond all measure. So Naomi says, my God has dealt bitterly with me. I'm devastated. But in reality, God was actually very, very present. But on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, my God has truly and ultimately dealt bitterly with me. He has smited me. He has devastated me. Jesus Christ, the name, he had a name, and yet he lost his name. He had a father, and yet he was disowned by the father. He is the ultimate Naomi, who was sweet, the name above all names, but on the cross he says, I'm truly empty and truly bitter. I am the ultimate Mara. And he did it for his people. He did it for his people. Hear Jesus Christ say, may the Lord deal bitterly with me if anything but death separates me and you. And yet, through that death, God even worked, he still died. God worked through that death to bind him and his people together forever for all time. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people are my people. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. He has gone the greater depths for us. When you see Jesus doing that for you, there is the sight of the ultimate Naomi, the ultimate Ruth, the ultimate Boaz that makes everything bitter sweet again. Sweet again. And when that happens, you can become a Ruth to others. Don't just look for Ruths in your life. A lot of us, we walk away and we say, well, who's a Ruth to me? No, that's not the point of this passage. How can you be transformed to become a Ruth in the midst of suffering and destitution for others? So you become their hope and the presence of God in their lives so they can say, I have nothing, but I have you. And through you, I, have, I know Jesus. Naomi had Ruth, we have the ultimate Ruth, a greater Ruth. In Jesus, we have the fullest Ruth, our lives. Like Naomi can say, my life is complete, our lives are complete in Christ. God works through the ultimate brokenness to bring our ultimate joy and salvation and redemption. And one day, complete restoration everything we've ever lost, every tear we've ever cried in him. So look to Jesus. Be soulfully and practically shaped by the grace, the sheer grace of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God in your life. It's an appropriate way to end our sermon series, right? Let's pray together.